Welcome to this week's edition of Two Men in the Middle, where two men talk about politics, current events, everything under the sun, culture. I'm Brandon Kinnig. I'm Craig Huey. So, Craig, uh, first thing, we had the death of Colin Powell, uh, which took over the news uh, for the most part over the last several days uh, in terms of defining his legacy, talking about him, uh, how he should be remembered and regarded, uh, particularly because of his role in his later years and warning against the direction of the Republican Party and where it was going under Trump. He kind of basically took on this elder statesman role. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing we were talking offline about is that he had gone on this speaking tour circuit with Madeleine Albright yeah. and warning about the dangers of autocracy and authoritarianism and how the United States was you know, in, in danger of succumbing to that and, and how we needed to keep our guard up. Uh, but you also have Iraq and you have the legacy of what yeah. he did as Secretary of State in the Bush administration and his performance before the UN. And so how do you reconcile all of that? When is the best time to bring that up? And and how do you piece together someone's legacy when they do have major blemishes, black marks, um, as well as positive things, particularly later in life? Yeah, I, Colin Powell's legacy is, it, it's complicated. And there's a progressive wing of the Democrat Party that absolutely sees him as a war criminal, was kind of held it against Obama that he didn't go after more of, of the Bush cabinet, specifically Powell, Rumsfeld, Cheney, as war criminals in Iraq. I, I think that's a little bit of, of a bridge too far. But I don't know how you take somebody and look at the totality of their career when the one bad thing they did was a really, really bad thing. And I guess, I don't know, how do you assign weight to Colin Powell's career? Did what he did later in life in his, his statesman role and his, his acting as a, a, a kind of a, a sanity check to, to, the, to the, the Republican Party, which was all needed, but how do you weigh that against what he did at the UN and what he did in the lead up to the Iraqi war? And I guess for me, I always blame Powell more because Powell was the adult in the room. Powell was the one with military experience. Powell was part of the first Bush administration. He was part of the, the Clinton administration. And Powell knew exactly who Rumsfeld and Cheney was. He had a moment in history where he could have stood up and, and really kind of cemented what his legacy could have been. But instead, he chose a different path. And th- there's a lot of debate was was this speech at the UN, was that all based off bad intel he got? You know, that's how he kind of played it off later on in his career. I just don't think that I just don't think that that holds holds water. Well, and if you read Bob Woodward's book about um, what was going on, the internal uh, machinations of the Bush administration, Powell was in opposition. Yeah. And there was internal conflict uh, because he did not agree with going to war with Iraq. And he lost that battle, um, obviously, with the, the Hawks and the administration. So, yeah, there is some question, you know, on obviously he knew, you know, that there wasn't the case. And yet he still went and uh, defended and, and, and yeah. attempted to make that case, even knowing that, it's, you know, the evidence was lacking. Is it fair to say Powell allowed himself to be used? I think so. I think to some degree. I mean, we can argue about, uh, you know, how much and to what extent, but yes, he did. And I sent you an article that, that I was reading after I heard about his death when I knew we were going to have to talk about this and people were already kind of savaging his legacy. The thing Trump sent out, that's his dumb, stupid, crass, uncalled for, and just, just ridiculous. His statement from 45 on his blog or whatever he, he made, that, that was just dumb. Well, and that's Trump's uh, yes. modus operandi. He will go after anybody that takes the limelight away from him. If it had been Madeleine Albright who passed away, he would have found some way Correct. to diminish her. That's what he does, and so he will tend to find whatever tends to get the most traction and, and use that. But in the article that I sent you, he it talked about how what 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 he really did, what Colin Powell really did at that UN speech, is he turned the Iraqi invasion from a war of choice to a war of necessity because he made the linkage that it was. 
that part of Iraq was linked to al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, and they were part of what attacked us on 9-11. And he mentions Zakari. I'm not going to try to get his name right because I won't. He mentions basically this, this, this terrorist inside Iraq, and he mentions him 21 times in his speech. And basically, Zakari becomes the connection between Osama bin Laden and Afghanistan and al-Qaeda and Iraq. I mean, everybody remembers the yellow cake and the little vial that, that he, he you know, brought with him as a prop to the right. UN. What is lost in that speech is really where he lays out the case. When we're attacking Iraq, we are attacking the people that attacked us on Al-Qaeda. 9-11. That is 100% false. And there is no convincing that, at least I can be convinced, that he didn't know that was Well, false. it's interesting that you go there because often that gets overlooked because most people focus on the weapons of mass destruction claim. Yes. And because that was the overarching mm-hmm. reason and rationale that was made that in the uh, post-9-11 world, we had to confront these rogue regimes that had weapons yeah. of mass destruction because they could get in the hands of terrorist organizations like al-Qaeda. And But you're right, because the underlying argument to that was that the al-Qaeda connection yeah. and going wherever al-Qaeda was. And so that's what also gave that weapons of mass destruction WMD claim um, even more yeah. um, legitimacy was by saying that you know al-Qaeda was operating in Iraq and could get a hold of those WMDs. And I sent you that article because that article has, has the tell. For Colin Powell to say in that UN speech in an interview years later, which you know he's been asked about word for word for that speech a thousand times in his life. For Colin Powell to play the I don't even remember talking about him card, that just tells you he's lying. As sharp as Colin Powell is, as articulate as Colin Powell is, you mean to tell me, somebody he mentioned in his UN speech, the critical point of his life and his career, he doesn't remember mentioning Zakari 21 times? That's a lie. That's just a lie. That's the tell that you know he was there to sell something that day that he did not believe in. And if you listen to the progressives part, that lie had something to do or played at least some small part in millions of Iraqi civilians dying. How do you weight that in his legacy? How do you say, is that 80% of it? Is it 20% of it? If you line out all of the things he's done in his life that define Colin Powell, how do you weight that one thing that had such tragic consequences for America, for the Middle East? It decentralized an entire portion of of the world. It created a a refugee crisis in Europe. How do you say, okay, the rest of this is pretty good, and I guess this is bad, but we'll give you a pass because there's a lot of good here. Well, and the problem I have is the timing. I mean, you know, the, 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 he hasn't even buried yet. And so no. I really have a problem with progressives going after him and picking everything apart because there's going to be plenty of time to do that. And obviously yeah. textbooks will be written. There'll be books and, and that his legacy will be defined in time. But the question I have is, and we're talking about, you know, great lies throughout history that have led to military interventions and conflicts, um, American entanglement. I mean, there's been many. He's not the first. I mean, you can go back to Johnson with the Gulf of Tonkin sure. incident. You can go back to Iran-Contra, which had led to a war, but also caused massive scandal. And, you know, that there was uh, deceit at the heart of that. And so where where do you stop? Because there's been plenty of, um, you know, in the Vietnam War itself entirely. I mean, the Pentagon Papers. I mean, you sure. had multiple presidents that were involved yeah. in that cover-up. So, but again, in the past, we we have it defined entire presidencies or entire cabinet secretaries by those incidents. So do we do that now? Is that just kind of where we are as a society? I think the change is that in in the recent past, we were we were engaged in American myth-making. We wanted to make mythical creatures, men mostly, into the, these myths about how good they were and how right they were and how righteous they are, and that's part of the American ideal and the American experience. That just feels completely kind of naive right wow. now. Yeah. I, and I'm not saying that's a good change. I'm just saying it's obvious we've made this change. We are not looking to build... We're not looking to myth-make around politicians, generals, military people anymore in the United States. And I think Colin Powell's death and people's reaction to it is a, is a sign of that. 
We're just not going to take somebody. I mean, LBJ, anybody that was involved in the Vietnam War, do they deserve a statue? Uh, I can't. Why? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that one's pretty obvious. Like, no. Um, I mean, Colin Powell was involved, I think, in one of the worst military mistakes this country's ever made. He deserves what for that? I, I don't know. Praise? Scorn? Ignored? I, I don't... I don't, I don't know, like you, I don't know what the rules are right now to how do you evaluate somebody's legacy. And Colin Powell's is so, is so close, and we're not going to give it any time. How are these rules changed on us? True. And, but again, you have to, I guess that's one, although albeit major episode in his lifespan, but it's one, right? I mean, he had a distinguished but it's the, career of right? public service. You know, his Gulf War service, which was, you know, I mean, so we're, it, it's, it's major, but does, is that the line? So you just leave it at, you know, a kind of two line summary of his. Pre- I, I, I come back to, again, if you laid everything he ever did out on the table, how do you wait it out? Because you can't wait what he did around Iraq and what he did at the U that has to have more significance than some of the other things that he did within his career. And I think that's what we're trying to sort through is how do you look at some of this good stuff, but how do you balance it out with the disaster that was the Iraq war? And what, what, what I, what I really dislike about Colin Powell in his later years is yes, he, he somewhat took responsibility, but it was always, I failed because somebody else failed, right? The intelligence was bad. Or he did the, I was following orders. The president wanted this. I, I, I delivered this for the president. I never got the sense that Powell took personal responsibility. It's one of the reasons why this war happened was a personal failure on my part to stand up to Cheney and Rumsfeld. And if I would have done a better job of that, even to the point where I would have quit because I do not believe the intelligence community, I failed at doing that. that I- that's an apology to me. Okay, but I disagree that that would have changed anything. I mean, we would have gone to war regardless. I mean, there was, I, I agree, but his he name was outnumbered would... completely in terms of the administration and the the cohort that were battle ready. So to me, we give him another demerit because when the chips were down and we really needed Colin Powell, right? When we really needed the myth of what Colin Powell was, it was right at that moment. And what did he do? He did what 99% of other people who we don't make myths about did. He knuckled under the pressure, and he went along with the group. Why is that something to praise? I, I just don't. I've always struggled with Colin Powell. I just don't get it. Well, yeah, I agree. I, I don't know that, and again, I think that mythologizing him is a bridge too far. But, I, I mean, I think it's one thing to recognize that, you know, philosophically and, you know, where he comes from politically is, is a dying breed in America and recognizing that and just saying that that's admirable. Um, but of course, you know, taking the, you know, the obviously black mark of Iraq out of that, because that was something he'll never live down. I mean, that's going to be what I really, what I heard you say there, Brandon, and tell me if I'm wrong, if I'm putting words in your mouth, you really just miss politicians like Colin Powell. Yeah, exactly. Somebody who, who was a gentleman, who could produce, who could present himself in a way that wasn't embarrassing, who, right. who was at a baseline, I think, an honest person and could articulate things that American people could understand. I think, maybe, and who at his core was a pragmatist. He cared yes. about governing. He, yep. you know, I, I think in terms of work and in terms of public office, like he had a certain set of ethics that he abided by. Like there were all of these. I think uh, qualities but that have gone how, by how the do wayside. How you say that when his biggest checkbox is a massive lie? I, this, this, this is the struggle when we get in, 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 into Jefferson. How can we say these people are ethical, moral examples and then say, but you just have to ignore this big giant thing they did. I think that that's where we're struggling here. I, I, I can't, I cannot put that tag on Colin Powell when at the center of his career, is this massively dishonest, unethical thing he did? Well, and I think part of it is, I I think we fail to contextualize to some degree, you know, these situations. Yeah. I mean, we're always viewing them by today's sure. lens, um, and not saying we shouldn't, but 
you know, there are factors that are, you know, I think that are outside of what we know now. It's easy to have 2020 hindsight and look back at the accumulation of everything we know now and be like, you know, this was uh, a mistake. Um, you know, and Iraq was obviously a mistake, um, but there were many people that were involved in peddling the falsehoods. Um, there was a coordinated effort. There was this um, run-up to war that was just even the media was very yeah. much behind. Um, it was almost a frenzy. I mean, to the point when actually um, the shock and awe campaign started. I mean, it was just, you know, covered nonstop. Jesse Ventura on CNN before he was governor talking about bombs and Navy SEAL activities. It was it was high entertainment. Yeah, and, and what was interesting, if you go back to that period, there were very few uh, voices in opposition. And even in mainstream media, most of them did not have any type of platform or pedestal. I mean, it, it, they were almost completely shut out. I mean, the drumbeat to war was just almost universal. Um, and so I think, yes, I, we need to blame those that could have done more and that were involved, but also culturally and as society as a whole, I mean, we immediately bought into it. And there's a lot that we failed to do in terms of asking the questions that should yeah. have been asked. And we just went along with it because I think we were at a time also that we were ready to bomb anybody uh, because <laughs> yeah, somebody we, was going to get somebody it. was going to pay. Gonna yeah. And we st- and despite our <laughs> intervention in Afghanistan, we still had that mindset like we were not out of that. I, I agree with that. I guess Jonah Goldberg is fond of saying that current events change history. And I think it's fair to say that Colin Powell was getting a rougher ride of it about his legacy because of our recent current events with Trump and yeah. our, our recent kind of at this point where everybody's just collectively ready to, to gag over almost anybody in politics right now. I right. think certainly that the moment that we are in in the present, current, it really colors some of the things of, of his legacy and looking back at the past. And if we hadn't just gone through Trump and through even the Afghanistan pullout and some of this other crap that we've been through, he probably would not be looked at maybe so harshly in in this light at this point. I I think you're right. And I think it'll be telling to see, especially those that are um, getting up there in age, some of those statesmen and and, uh, appointees, you know, former presidents, once they do pass away, how we do view them and and what – what their legacies look like, because I think it is different. I think that compared to five, even 10 years ago, where we are now as a society in the, the post-Trump era, um, which I hate to even say post-Trump <laughs> because we're still, for what, matter what, of factly, in the Trump era. What if we're in the paused Trump area, where this era, where this is just a little pause waiting for Trump to come back? Right. And that's, I think, what scares me most is that <laughs> that's, I think, most likely. Well, what, what really sucks about this, Brad, is at least we have a, you know, 275 more years to debate this because now we're going back at New York is looking at a statue of Thomas Jefferson, which I believe it's in the, the Assembly House or something. So, well, I know this is City Council. City this Council. This is a New York okay. um, so municipal building, so I think it's City Hall. So there's a statue of Thomas Jefferson that enough council members have voted that they want to have removed. Um, the issue is they haven't found a place for it yet, so I yeah. think that's still undetermined. And wasn't this statue? It was somewhere else in that building before it was there. Because I, I think they've, they, they've talked about moving it before, but they right. didn't. So this is something they've at least debated at some point in time. True. So they've debated before it, so now we're at the point where – Again, all of these figures are being reevaluated, um, and you know. But it is a statue of a president. So the idea—I mean, if we take this, you know, further and have statues of Jefferson removed from all public places, there's actually a number of uh, many statues of Jefferson throughout America uh, in yeah. public buildings um, on the state, uh, county, local levels. So how far do you go um, down that angle? I know locally, for those who don't know. Um, you know, Jackson County, Missouri is named after Andrew Jackson. And there was a big uh, argument about removing yeah. the statue of Andrew Jackson in front of the county uh, courthouse, I believe. So, but uh, I don't know. I just, I feel like we often talk about this. And I think this is the, the logical criticism that some on the right have is that, uh, you know, it, it starts with moving statute, removing statues of those where there's universal condemnation or abhorrence yeah. uh, about, but then it's a slippery slope. And then it's where does it end? And where do we take this? And I think a good example is 
um, it was uh, several months ago, um, San Francisco decide, was looking at renaming all of their schools, even schools that were named after Abraham Lincoln, yeah. because it found that these people were you know, no longer um, in vogue. And the effort ran into some problems because they have some of the uh, alternatives that they um, proposed. <laughs> I um, and I don't know if you remember this. One of them was an African-American, but then it was found out that it was an African-American who had um, anti uh, gay sentiment, and so, so then can't have him. right, so or her. it's like how again, where does it stop? Um, and and so it, it can quickly get out of hand, particularly. I mean, Abraham Lincoln, really? So he's no longer viable in terms of I, I, I namesake. Don't know, I don't know what I don't know what what your complaint with Lincoln could be, but you could definitely have some 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 legitimate good faith complaints with Thomas Jefferson. I mean. Jefferson, I think I've talked about this on the pod before. I remember growing up, there was a Lifetime movie on, and I think it was called like Tom and Sally or something, the, the Sally Hemingway story. Yeah. And it was a love story. It was a Lifetime romance where the two central characters were Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemingway. Sally Hemingway was the Thomas Jefferson slave who he fathered several children by. A slave woman cannot give consent. That's rape. Right. Thomas Jefferson let his children from Sally Hemingway die in slavery, die in bondage. That's not very good. I mean, again, how do you, how do you present a port? Or do you just say, we're just honored, this statue honors this, and that's it? I, I, don't, know how you, I don't know how you do this. Somebody could stand in front of me and I think make a good faith argument why a statue of Thomas Jefferson should be removed that I would be somewhat sympathetic to. But... I mean, but to your point, so we just take everybody down? We have no history? Nothing exists? I don't know what the answer to this is. Well, and I guess I just want to know, like, what the criteria is. Because without any overarching criteria, like, it it doesn't end. I mean, it's a slippery slope that just continues. And and that is, I think, the argument that's made by some, which actually has some teeth and, and resonates with some people, is that, you know, where does it end? I think that... We can all agree, you know, yes, statues to uh, Confederate generals that were put up in the That's post-war the yep. era specifically to per, uh, perpetuate this uh, re- narrative, new narrative about the South. Like, clearly, you know, those should be removed. Those aren't historical. Those were done with a specific intention um, that aligned with segregation um, in the post-slavery era. So those should be removed. But then when you look at statues beyond that, are we like any historical figure that has any anything that's questionable, anybody that has a colonial tie, even that's if they did gone. some good? There was controversy over a statue of Junipero Serra, who was a— um, I believe a Franciscan a friar that came mm-hmm. with the Spanish um, in America um, solely because of his ties to the colonial invaders, yeah. um, even though he was known for doing a lot of good stuff and mm-hmm. for opening schools and teaching indigenous children. But but again, so where there's shades of gray. And so where do you draw the lines here? Is it just <laughs> is it anybody by virtue of association? I get, is there any historical figure you could think of under today's rubric that somebody wouldn't find offensive? Because yeah, I, what you just said there about, about the, 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 the Franciscan monk. Yeah. So he taught white religion to a bunch of indigenous people. I find that horrible. I, I, this is what I'm saying. Right. How, how do you, or is the goal to basically say, we, we're going to change the current in the United States by selectively rewriting or erasing parts of our past? And are we somewhat saying that if these people that we've always held up as the foundation of our country, the character and, and the people that we always aspire to be, if they're terrible, in some ways are we saying nobody meets that standard and we're all terrible? Yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't know. It, it, it's almost like who, who's leading this? Who's behind this? I, I have some strong feelings about some of these things, but I generally this is one that I would just keep to myself. I'm not that offended by a statue. I do think there should be a little plaque by it that basically says, hey, here's the other side of this story, and, and here's how you can find out more about this person. I th- it feels like there's a compromise we could reach, a middle ground, to keep these things in play, but also expand the, the definition of what we're presenting to the public about who this person was. 
I mean, I would think that that would be a happy medium, right? I mean, it would be, I think, solve for those who feel like the entire story is being told. That way you're telling the entire story. You're putting the statue or the yeah. um, the monument in context, which is always good. Uh, so, yeah, so I think there are ways to do it. And um, I just think we get so far afield and that it, this, especially when it comes to statues and recognizing people, it quickly gets um, yeah. just muddled. And so it's a question of... What's, what's weird about this, if Thomas Jefferson could magically appear in front of the New York City Council about his statue, he would demand it be taken down. I read a little bit about Jefferson this week. He was huge on on history is for the living. The world is yeah. for the living. He was never big on statues, historical legacies. He firmly believed that Thomas Jefferson would be appalled that we have it really completely that we're not on version five of the of the 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 the, the, the Constitution. Thomas Jefferson. He's an was, extremely complicated the, figure, but he was, he was very. He, he there was no sentimentality to him at all. No, but he was also very progressive in some ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at him, another thing we like to um, mythologize, you know, religion with our founders. Thomas Jefferson was a theist. Yeah, and he, as far as religion goes, I mean, he was very New Agey almost in his approach to God and religion. I mean, he owned a Koran, his own personal yeah. copy of the Koran. He owned a Bible. Oh. He read the Torah. Yeah. He was all about reading from multiple religions and taking from multiple religions the good and, and creating a, you know his own philosophy. Um, he was well-read. He was a fervent believer in public education, and he was the reason that we have public education. He yeah. started that. So, and again, he, obviously you have slavery and all of the negatives that um, he perpetuated with that. But, but again, it, it goes to say that he's a very complicated figure. So, uh, you know, we a lot of bad from him, but also a lot of good. And so, again, where do you draw those lines? How do you contextualize yeah. the entire person and all of that? And can you can you extract slavery from somebody from that time? Can can you say, listen, slavery was was a common practice. It was a common practice in the United States. It was and a common Great practice Britain. almost all over the world yeah. at this point. It would be impossible. It, it would be like judging a politician today strictly for using social media. I understand that slavery and social media, that's a terrible analogy. But how can you take somebody, separate them from the historical context of the time, and then apply a, a different set of, of morality that's to what it? That under- never works. No, because, I mean, and, and slavery was a common practice at the time, and common practice going all the way back to, I mean, you know, early you know, BC. I can't remember a time of recorded history where there wasn't slavery. So what's interesting to me is if if you go to Rome um, and you see like the statues of Caesar Augustus or some of these like Roman empire figures, I mean, all of them are technically out of vogue in today's society because they all own slavery. They perpetuated conquest. I mean, they, you know, destroyed entire civilizations. American Indians enslaved each other all the time. Well, they, and, and so the Africans, black Africans Absolutely. on the African continent. So, you know, that was commonplace there. So, I mean, the entire world engaged in slavery of one form or another of other people. I mean, that was just the way it was. And the Romans engaged in slavery. I mean, they had slaves um, from from Africa, from Asia, from Europe. I yeah. mean, anybody could be a slave, white, black, any You got an empire that big. You got to have a lot of slaves to run right. it. Right. Got to have a lot of free labor. So, and, and, you know, and many of the Romans, if you were an affluent Roman, you had slaves. Sure, so it was again, just part of the day. Um, you know, but it, so it's it's interesting. So do you, do you take down those statues? Like, how do you contextualize the entire, you know, Roman Empire and the, the growth and peak of the Roman Empire? Because you really can't. Um, it was all built on the backs of slaves, essentially. Um, so, and how do you take Jefferson and, and how do you how do you reconcile his hypocrisy? How do you say somebody that could write a document that has set the standard for two hundred and seventy some odd years on on government and freedom and what government's true role is and not not granting rights but protecting rights? How do you how do you square that? With his personal behavior. Yeah. Well, and, and Jefferson I don't, I don't was— I do how you do that. Jefferson was an enigma and uh, a frustrating enigma and also a hypocrite, right? Because he believed and said that slavery was wrong personally, and he hated it, but yet he still owned slaves. So, you know, he was somebody who said he thought the institution was wrong, it needed to go away eventually, but yet he still took part in it. So and, how can someone do that? And if I recall history correctly, wasn't Jeff—one of Jefferson's problems is he was always in debt. 
He was always into some yeah. failed business scheme, something. He was always looking for money. And part of his his economic problems, people have said that that's what what kept him owning because he had to because he was trying to he was trying to to economically get ahead. But one of the problems he had is he was always kind of disadvantaged. He Jefferson was the guy who was always kind of participating in some kind of get rich quick scheme that always blew up in his face. If I recall from our Smithsonian visit many years ago, he, he was in the business, he was in the nail business, for example, he, of making nails, he had a foundry. He always had some sort of hustle going, trying to make money, and it never seemed to work. Oh, yeah, he had several. I, I remember I visited uh, Monticello, his residence in Virginia, and they talked about all of his business ventures, so there were many. If Thomas Jefferson can't have a statue, then no, then who does? Are, are we just saying that Building statues out of political figures is a terrible idea because they're all human and they're all flawed and they all have done bad things, and we just should stop doing it. Is well, that what we're saying? I think part of the problem why there's such a strong reaction is because there has been a failure to acknowledge the other side. So the historical figures that were African-American that achieved, they don't have the corresponding statues and representation, which we could and should do. Um, we don't even have a national museum on the impact of slavery in this country or, or on segregation. We, you know, we, hmm. we kind of hush that up and we, we don't give that the visibility that it probably should and, and as part of that same context. So without tearing statues down necessarily of anybody who was involved or had an association of slavery, what we could do is acknowledge the impact of slavery on the other side by putting up statues of slaves who fought against um, the laws of the time uh, and and acknowledging the human toll of slavery. Yeah. But we don't really do that. We don't, we don't do have that. them those museums. We don't have those statues. And and really, even in our history books, you know, those figures and events are given very little space. I saw a tweet that I think this week was the 75th anniversary of the Lucille Ball show being launched or something. Oh, yeah. And there's that new movie that's coming out yeah. with uh, Nicole Kidman and Lucille Javier Bardem. Yeah, that looks pretty good. But the, the tweet was it, it was a video of the classic, the candies coming off the thing and her and Ethel can't keep up and they start eating it and all that shit. And the person who did the tweet basically says back. Back when, back to a better time in America, or back to a more simpler time, or where things were better, referencing that in the 50s, it was a simpler, by default, better time in America than it is today. And I, I clicked on it to see the replies, because oh, yeah. you know what's coming. Better for whom? Right. Who was this better for? In 1951, Jim Crow was all the rage. We had to find a, a, a second-class citizen's in the United States, is that better? I just it just reminded me of how do you look back on right? Anything? I mean, if you were black or gay yeah. or a woman, it, well, yeah, it was. I mean, the fifties the, the laws were so time. restrictive. Yeah, I mean, you had your happy days crowd if you were white in a family, and then everything else, n nothing was geared towards anything other than than white culture in nineteen fifty one. Everything was geared toward that end. Um, so. It, I think that that was a difference. I mean, you know, a few of the positives was you had um, this much, I think, stronger um, importance placed on community. Yeah. That's when, like, community associations and organizations were at their zenith, like, you know, Kiwanis church Club membership, and Rotary yeah. Clubs and, church, you know, church membership. You had, uh, you know, interestingly enough, taxes were much higher in the 50s because there's this belief and mindset that, you know, corporations needed to pay more so that, that money could go into the common good. Yeah, um, that's going. So, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of that mentality where that – gave way to this um, idea and this approach of just individual first and freedom before anything, and my freedom matters more than anything else or the collective. So that's the one thing that, that was probably pretty positive that's gone by the wayside societally and culturally. But, but yeah, I think if you were a member of various groups, I mean, you were not given the same rights and you did not have the same visibility in society. You just didn't. I mean, yeah. even Lucille Ball, if you read up, and I think the new movie talks about this, um, her and Ricky Ricardo having to fight studio bosses um, to be able to do the show in the first place, um, you know, and the the first 
th- they actually opened up the first country club that was open up to minorities <laughs> as well. Because b- at that time, there was not a single country club in the Jesus. U.S. that would allow in yeah. minorities, yeah. I mean, which is crazy. Did, didn't they, too? They, they slept in the same room, but they slept in separate beds, They right? did, yeah. Okay. And that continued through the 60s. Like the Dick Van Dyke show, I think him and Mary Tyler Moore, they slept in like yeah. small twin beds. In oh, the do you know the other thing? They were not allowed to acknowledge or to say uh, the word pregnant on the show. So when she was pregnant oh, on God. the show, her character was like, they couldn't actually say that. So they found ways around it to be able to talk about it and uh, imply that she was pregnant without actually saying it. Cause that wasn't allowed on TV back then. So I guess the better time in the fifties <laughs> was when we all acted like children where we couldn't talk about women getting pregnant on right. TV or married couples sleeping in the same room. Well, and you forget, and this is kind of going off on a tangent, but uh, um, on one of my trips recently on the plane back, I was watching this um, show about the, the codes, the moral codes in Hollywood, yeah. because prior to the 1940s, um, there were no moral codes. And so you had this period from like the 1920s to about 1940, where it was anything goes. And yeah. I mean, there were films that got, pretty graphic and risque <laughs> in their content. And then you had the set of moral codes that was imposed and none of that was allowed. And yeah. so it became so restrictive until those codes were lifted, I think in the late sixties. And it, it's just interesting how society kind of ebbs and flows like American society. We went through a period in the twenties where it's very much like anything goes attitude, um, both on the screen as well as, yeah. you know, in culture. And then that kind of got stamped out by the 1950s and it was much more family centered. And then we came out of that with the sixties and feminism. So it's, it's weird how we just kind of go up and down. I mean, I think we're always progressing and this goes back to, um, there was a historian who said this, it's always like, you know, three steps forward, one step backward in America. So we yeah. inch forward, but you know, we go backwards sometimes. The Trump era was a good example <laughs> of that. Uh, so it's just, it, it, it is interesting how we, we do that, but yeah, there's times in American history where you can go back and, um, there were some pretty, I think, progressive things that happened. And then there was reaction to that. And yeah. then that was stamped down. I, I didn't, I didn't ask you, where, where did you travel to last week? So your, I, your travel schedule is not slowing down by the way. <laughs> so I went on my first trip abroad. Okay. So I was in Italy and Switzerland. Oh, wow. Um, so I just did a week where I hit Rome, Milan, and Zurich. Was uh, this by planned? Did, did you know you were going to do this? Um, I really kind of planned them last like month, like okay. month to six weeks, um, because I found a really great travel deal. So I was able to get an airline ticket for about $675. Wow. Uh, that's pretty good. Round trip. And so I started piecing together this trip kind of last minute. Uh, and it went well, um, had to get tested for COVID sure. going there and coming back. But, um, other than that, I was surprised. I mean, Europe, um, at least Italy and Switzerland were, were pretty open. Uh, main difference is you have to show your vaccine card to enter museums and to eat in restaurants. Uh, but there isn't really any restrictions on like crowd sizes anymore, I gotcha. um, which is interesting. So it's interesting that Italy is that open after the just yeah, the punishing because year they were they hit had. so hard and they had such God. a significant lockdown for so long. Yeah, we went to uh, we went to Washington last week to wine country. It was it was nice. The Walla Walla is the big area of wine production in Washington. Oh, okay, just skip it. Their wines yeah. are horrible. Um, is that in the eastern part of the state? It's in eh, or center. It's I kind guess. of in the south central part oh, okay. of the state. So I thought Washington. I thought the entire state was just one big lush forest. Yeah. No, we were in the part where really they get under five inches of rain a year. And oh it's wow! Considered it's almost a desert. Wow! I didn't and even know there was like desert in Washington. I didn't. State. I didn't yeah. know this either. So if you're wine, if you're going on a wine trip to Washington, go to the Red Mountain area. The okay. Red Mountain area is superior to Walla Walla. So. We're, I live in Missouri. Missouri has a wine industry. You Herman, can't see Missouri. me. I'm air yeah. quoting this. Their wines, <laughs> they suck. They're terrible. Don't even drink them. They're just to say they're their shit is is not Uh-oh. even that's not enough. Missouri listeners are not going to be too happy. Anybody who lives in Missouri who drinks wine and doesn't <laughs> think Missouri wine is crap, you're just you're just flat wrong. And 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 you know that. Yeah. But like Missouri wine has that that kind of inky kind of cotton mouthy taste. It's mm. the same type of soil content, I guess, in the Walla Walla area. So if ah, you're going to go to wine and you want something that is more like Napa, go to the Red Mountain area, not the, the Walla Walla area. Have you been to the area in Oregon that's supposed to be the wine country there? That's supposed we to be have really not, good? but it's again, it, it's one of those things that... Is it the Willamite Valley, something like that? I think so. Yeah. We, we've been to Washington, we've been to Napa a bunch, and it's, it's hard to beat the Napa 
if, yeah. if, if I did that not, for the first time this year, and I have to say, like Napa, it. it's just amazing. And it, there's it's such a large area too. I never yeah. realized how just it, massive it's a giant it is. farm area. Yeah. So I didn't tell you I wanted to talk about this in warm ups, but the whole kind of great resignation. The fact that we, we've learned now that in August, like 4.5 million people dropped out of the workforce that just aren't looking for a job yeah. anymore. And that they feel in September, it's going to be another huge number. And the, the debate or the theory is, could all of these people just deciding to leave the workforce somehow permanently change the way America works? And I'm all for it. If 4.5 million people left in August, I hope double that left in September. If there's one institution that needs a giant kick right in the ass, to me, it, it's the world of work. Yeah. It, everything, everything I think about traditional kind of – we're white-collar office folks. Mm -hmm. Everything I think about that world has just been – just feels antiquated. It feels old. It feels – in no way set up to support the worker, what you need to do, what you want out of work. And I hope one of the things that COVID, one of its lasting kind of legacies is maybe it permanently reshapes work a little bit. Maybe it gives a little bit of more power to the people who are, are filling those jobs and they use that power to shape the world of work in, in a different way. Because the world of work hasn't adapted even as we've progressed technologically um, as mm. rapidly as we have, work has just kind of remained the the 40 hour work week, the, the idea that you clock in and out of the office, there's, there's so many aspects and facets to, to work that have a change. And finally it's starting to change. And who knew that it would take a pandemic huh. to, to do that? Well, it, it took something again that exposed a massive lie. Everybody needs to be in the office every day. Yeah. No, no, they don't. And the bitch of it is, is as workers, we've all known this for years. We've been promoting this idea for years. Right. Suddenly, once that Band-Aid got ripped off because of the pandemic, I think there's a big kind of, see, I told you this would work. And if you don't believe me or you're holding this back when you kind of knew this would work, what else around here are you putting me through for, for no, real, no real reason? Yeah. Well, and the evidence, you can see it with the companies that are just offloading their massive office spaces, yeah. um, which are all on the market now. But where, where is the, Brendan, where is the world of work heading? If, if you kind of project out, I'm, I'm much closer to the end for, for my career, which yeah. God, thank you for that. You've still got 25-ish more years or 20 more years. Or hell, by the time, by the time you get around to your, your retirement benefits from the government, I mean, Social Security will probably be 68 to 70 by then. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, <laughs> we're in the next, for the rest of your career, the, the immediate five, six, seven, eight year run for your career, how do you see things changing? And is there a list of things that kind of are your demands anymore that, hey, I, I really want to see this in, in work settings and work environments? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I uh, just personally, I mean, remote or remote flexible is essential now. Like that's, there's no question about that. Like, I mean, if that's, you know, not part of the the job, then it's not something I yeah. consider, uh, you know, and I think um, there needs to be, I think, flexibility too, in terms of, you know, benefits and what those benefits look like. Um, you know, that's something that has also changed um, with, uh, was starting to change before the pandemic, but has now changed even more so, um, you know, after the pandemic. And, uh, and I think companies are also realizing too, that, um, you know, time-wise, like they have to provide employees with a pathway for advancement and growth that's um, realized much sooner than probably would have been done in the past. I think employees, because it's so competitive now, employees aren't going to wait around, you know, multi several years to be able to have the opportunity to advance because they can go somewhere else um, in a highly competitive marketplace. So companies need to be able to provide that up front. Mm -hmm. If you're a parent, um, there needs to be, um, there's been I, this escalation of maternity and paternity time uh, off, paid time off that um, companies are kind of in wars to outdo each other on um, as well. Uh, so, so that's an aspect to it. 
but yeah, I think there, there's many aspects at play, um, particularly, I think, when it comes to, to white-collar jobs. And then even, yeah. I think, in, in blue-collar, um, which is really struggling right now because they can't retain uh, people. I mean, yeah. you can see it with um, in, in retail and in yeah. fast food with the signs on the windows. That's the I mean, worst part about traveling is service has just fallen Completely by the wayside, nothing. yeah. There's no expectations. There's no effort anymore. And, and by the way, anybody who can hear my voice that owns a business that works with a customer – when a customer walks into your place of business, don't start by explaining how the experience is going to suck because three of your employees didn't show up today. That's not Ooh. my problem. No, that's I, not. I, I don't care. That is a you problem. Do I get a discount? You, you booked me for full price. Now you're telling me that the reason everything is slow or late is because you don't have employees. Why is that my issue? Don't make your service problems your customers' issues. I am not going to. God, that drives me crazy. I'm not going to ask you to name this business, but what type of business was it? It was a winery oh, okay. in, in, Cali- in, in Washington. Gotcha. We, and so that, wow. And so yeah. uh, we, we paid for like uh, tastings and rooms and all this. And, and to tell you up front. Oh, that, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Brandon, I was in Lowe's the other day, and a very nice young woman was trying to help me find a, 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 a jig I was looking for. Yeah. I, I re- I didn't expect her to know exactly where it was. It's kind of a weird thing. But while she was looking it up, she looked at me and said, why aren't you just buying this off Amazon? And I kind of said, I can't argue with that. You're you're correct. I just bought it off Amazon. (laughs) I don't want Amazon to win by default. But if you're not even going to try, what? I mean, what kind of employee, I mean, would suggest that you go elsewhere? But to her, I mean, this 20-year-old young woman working, it it was the most logical thing for her to say. (laughs) I mean, she's grown up her whole life not going to the store, just going to Amazon. Back to work real quick. And and we could do three hours on on how service is just absolutely tanking at this point in time. But I I heard somebody the other day say, okay, I'm going to approach a a 25-year-old and say, I'm going to lay out your career in broad strokes for you, okay? So you're 25 you're probably, by the time you get to retirement age, all of these benefits are going to push probably, let's just say till you're 70. You can draw Social Security, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, all of that stuff. Because as you already know, you have to work to have health insurance. Yeah. So already you're committing to 50 years in somebody's employment because you have to have health insurance. Welcome to America. Welcome to America. Okay, so I'm going to need you to work the next... 45 or 50 years of your life. Um, and there's a couple of things you're going to have to avoid along the way. Number one, getting sick. Because you may have health insurance, but if you get really sick, you're going to financially wipe yourself out, and you're yeah. never going to hit that retirement thing. You're going to have to, if I were you, I'd avoid getting married. 51% of marriages into divorce, you just financially tanked yourself. I don't know. You'd be very, very careful about doing that. Oh, and your career isn't going to be your father's or your mother's where it was a constant incremental step up. It's going to have five or six stop and starts. You're going to lose ground sometimes. You're going to be up. You're going to be down. And I need you to do all of that so that when you hit 70, if you're lucky, you might get 15 years of what you want to do. If you've avoided all of these trappings and if you've saved enough, you might be able to retire. How ridiculous does that sound? And when you put it that way, it really does, right? It I mean, is that way fairly accurate? And we're also, it is. And, you know, in this day and age, we're also, you have to add in the threat of automation and, have, you know, what type of jobs are going to be displaced by automation. That's the other part. Halfway up your career, your industry is just going to go away. And you have to enter a new industry, a new vertical, and, and learn new skills. And you have to be prepared for that. And, it's like whiplash. And half the employers you're at, I hate to tell you this, you're just going to hate. You're going to hate the company. You're going to not like the people. Half of the time that you've spent in work is going to be with people you'd probably not choose to be around. Yeah. Is that, is that what you want to do? I, I, I am so amused at Ben Shapiro and Hugh Hewitt and some of the conservative podcasts I listen to as they're just scratching their head and just can't figure out why so many people are dropping out. It's got to be all these government monies we're giving people, right? And they just don't, they just never fall to the obvious. Maybe it just really sucks. And a lot of people took this last year and a half to figure out ways that they don't want to go back. Yeah. That seems like the most obvious, obvious answer. Yeah, I think so. And the question is how long that, that holds up. Um, and, and again, how companies respond and what the jobs of the future look like. 
because I think companies will have to respond. Employers will have to because as the labor shortage continues, um, you know, they won't have a choice. Uh, you know, if they, they need labor and they're going to have to compromise. So I used to always be confused about why would companies, why, has, why haven't businesses banded together? It just said, we're out of the insurance business. We're, Completely, we're done. Yeah. We, we're, we're just not paying for it. We're done. It's part of that hook that keeps you there. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've met with our financial guys talking about you know some some pre-retirement steps, and he's like, "Your number one goal is you got to find insurance somehow. If you if you decide to retire early, your number one expense is, is insurance. So you can allocate twenty five to thirty five thousand dollars a year to pay for it <sighs> until you hit. Is it sixty five now? Which yeah. is and it'll probably go up by the time. He's like, that's your one thing. And to say, well, in 20 years, they'll certainly have it solved. They will. <laughs> I, I don't. Because we've done so well now. Yeah. Brandon, think about how different work would be if your health insurance wasn't tied to it. Oh, it would it would give you so much more flexibility. Sure. You could actually do what you're passionate about rather than feeling yeah. like you have to lock yourself in based on health insurance, particularly if you have a family where that's the utmost thing and priority in your mind. And culturally, haven't we just gone overboard on work? Haven't we? We just define ourselves by our jobs way too much. Oh yeah. We invest way much, way too much time in work. I always hated it when somebody says we're a family here. Well, then I'm not working here because I have a family, and they're <laughs> way more important family, than yeah. you people. And if you make me pick, you're going to lose every time. You're not my family. But that is a that's the frustrating part, right? Because you spend more time at work with your work colleagues uh, than Correct. you do your own family. Then you're yeah. A, yeah, we're not family just because we're forced to spend time together. <laughs> right. Although. That's a definition, I think, for a lot of families, for yeah. people who are forced to spend time with. Can you believe Thanksgiving's like 20, 30? No. We're under a, are we, we're like 33 days away from Thanksgiving. Something like that. And I hate this time of year because then once we, Thanksgiving hits, like the year just goes by that fast. And then you have Christmas and then it just boom, yeah. boom, boom. Once, you're right. Once Thanksgiving hit, the year's gone. Where did this year go? I don't know. I, don't I feel like we blinked and 2021 was over. 2020 was an excruciating long year because of the pandemic and then it's just weird 2021 it's so usually at halloween i ask my wife do you remember what we did for new year's <laughs> nope i can't remember i don't what remember we did. what i did i didn't for new remember year's. what we did for news yeah. are you going to blow out new year's this year because you know there might be an opportunity to i yeah i'm thinking i haven't decided what i'm going to do yet but yeah i think that after you know the last two i mean it's people are ready to once you cross a certain age threshold, you just you just you start celebrating East Coast New Year's. Everybody goes to bed at Early. eleven. <laughs> yeah, New Year's just isn't just isn't our our holiday at this yeah. at this point in time. Yeah, I don't know. I thought about going somewhere New Year's. I have no desire to go do the ball drop though, in New York City, no. because you get stuck there. You uh, can't go to uh, the bathroom. You're there for like eight hours. Like that does not seem appealing to me. Pressed. In a crowd on a cold day in New York, or go to jail for six months. I think I'd, I'd do a six month jail sentence. Yeah. There's no way. And those people are all over you and all that. That right. just that just uh, that just bothers the shit out of me. Yeah. When people rub up against you or bump on you in a crowd, just not a just not, not a not fan. something you're into. Yeah. yeah. The ball drop is not my. <laughs> that's certainly not my gig. Well, it's like you can see it on TV without having all the, sure. you know. Be nice and warm. Issues. Yeah, exactly. Being out there in the crowd. Let's end with, are you going to get your Truth Social account? Did you get did you get pre-approved for Trump's new new social media platform? So I was reading something about this. It's not <laughs> it's not even in beta, though, yet. Is it? I, this is all proposal, right? I, yes. And, and he has struggled with this because he's been for a year now working on a social platform and hasn't been able to come up with anything. Did you read that statement where he basically said it already has a valuation of like $1.7 <laughs> billion or something, and he's walking through, and it's like, what are you There's no substance yet about? to it, so it doesn't exist. I don't get it. I, what, I whatever happened know. to that one that his uh, Jason Miller came up with? Yeah. I yeah. think it's Getter. Oh, Getter, what, yeah. What I loved is that somehow they got a hold Getter of the, the, the pitch <laughs> deck from the Trump, what is it, the MTG? I thought it was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's like Trump Media Technology Group, TMTG. Oh, okay. That's the name of the company? Trump Media, yeah. Trump Media Technology. That's really TMTG. close to the Turtles. Yeah, that is. So I forgot what I was going to say because I was so fascinated on, on the Turtle thing. But, okay. no, okay, so About they, the pitch deck, they, yeah. they, they found his, they got a hold of his pitch deck to investors. And there's a slide where TMTG is like the Middle Earth, and it's pulling all of these satellite sites into it. And one of them is Gitter. So basically, in the pitch, 
he basically said parlor, Frank's speech, getter, those all suck and don't count. Those will all be collapsed into, or their audiences or content would all be taken over by truth social or whatever, whatever the shit he is. Hmm. So basically all the people that went out and started one of these that were hoping to curry his favor to get on their platform, he just took a big dump all over. And if this thing ever gets launched with who knows if it will, I would think it would be the predominant conservative only social media site. Yeah, you would think. I mean, I'd get an account for it just to see what Trump does. <laughs> I mean, I uh, did you see his latest statement that he put out? Just uh, my favorite was the one he put out a couple days ago where, hey, Republicans ain't voting if you don't put me back in as president. Did you see that one? I did not see that one. Then he came back later and said, okay, I'm going to need $45 each out of all of you (laughs) to put me back in president. I wish I were lying to you or making this up. But no, that's... No, I'm not. He had one out a couple days ago, too, where he um, was very uh, disparaging against Liz Cheney, but then also managed to be sexist about it because he said nobody could stand <laughs> to look at her, which he put uh, that in there. Of course. And then Good the latest God. one that I think was just today was he said that um, Election Day last November was um, the insurrection and that uh, January 6th was the protest, uh, something to that effect. So he's. So I think nine Republicans in the House did vote to basically refer Bannon to the DOJ because he didn't yeah. respond to thing. I thought that was hold them in contempt. That was some progress. That's good, and, and they have to. I mean, they have to exercise the full weight and authority of their power because this is par for the course for Trump and his people. They will test the limits completely, yeah. and yeah. and if if people like Bannon can't be held in contempt for defying a subpoena, then, you know, what's the point? If I was Trump, I'd say, I want SEAL Team 6 to pick him up. Kick yeah. his goddamn front door down, all of it. Yeah. Send the message. I, exactly, no. that's that's how I, I feel. If we're a country of laws, we're a country of laws. They apply to you. The United States Congress said, come talk to us. You don't have a choice. Right. Executive privilege for an ex-president doesn't exist. Well, and Bannon wasn't even employed I, in the White I, House at that time. He had been let go how many years before that? I mean, it's so not even relevant. Brandon, is being a lawyer a lot easier than we thought? Because apparently <laughs> you can just make up any shit you want. Yeah, and how, just can, do it. how can lawyers for the administration even argue this and still not face consequences for that? Is there no, like, <laughs> it just, I don't get it. I mean, you still have Sidney Powell who hasn't been disbarred. Yet, I mean, Sidney Powell came out and said, "Well, where am I going to get all the money to pay for all these lawsuits against me? <laughs> Dumbass, you should have thought of that before you started." Yeah, I, I certainly hope that Bannon gets compelled by law enforcement to come to testify to Congress. I do. Yeah, it needs to happen. So the only the only thing that's going to keep the Democrats from getting wiped out in 2022 is some sort of slow drip of information about Trump and the Republicans about January 6th. The only strategy left is to basically make the Republicans, using their own actions and own words, so repugnant that they stay home. Yeah. That's the that's the only strategy you can play. Force people like Mark Meadows yeah. to testify. They yeah. all testify, all of them. And I think if you're Biden, you're going to see him get a little bit more aggressive with it as they know that's the primary strategy moving forward. Right. I don't think you can keep the House, but you might be able to keep the Senate. I think the Senate is possible, yeah. And I think it's possible there are some potential Senate pickups there in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin that, that could be had. So we'll I heard my, my first interview with Herschel Walker as a candidate. Wow, is he terrible. Oh, well, and everybody's been saying that. I, I yeah. did not know that, yeah. And there's still some recruiting efforts going on with Republicans to try to get people to to run for Senate seats, right? There are, yeah, that are. And gosh, I'm trying to think of which ones are still. Um, I know Hogan in Maryland, but I think he's pretty much said he he's done. Yeah, he's he's not going to do it. No, and so yeah, there's that. Um, we still don't have an answer yet on whether Ron Johnson is running again for reelection. We do not. He may so retire. Yeah, he could retire. That's kind of still undefined. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Grassley's running now, so I mean... Well, and Grassley's 89, so yeah, he'll be, <laughs> what, 93 when he's up again, 94? There there has to be something done about that, doesn't I, there? I, there should be. I, I just... We I can't, can't. We just can't keep allowing that to happen. 
God. What do you want? What do you want to end on tonight? You do anything fun, special? I mean, your travel should be done, shouldn't it? Unless you see another great deal. You yeah, pretty do? much. I may I may do a, a domestic trip before the end of the year just to make status on Delta, so yeah. that's possible. But uh, <laughs> I think I just need one like. Domestic... You need to make a business trip somehow. Yeah. Are you traveling you at all for business or? Not right now, no. I yeah. mean, my company still hasn't really opened, yeah. gone back to business travel yet, so um, that's kind of out of the way. But but yeah, I may do some just weekend jaunt somewhere before end of the year. We'll yeah. see. Yeah, I think our travel, well, no, we're going to Colorado in November, oh, but okay. I think that's about it. But like I said, once you hit Thanksgiving, for us, kids start coming home from college, oh, yeah. and then we got to start too busy. that yeah. out, and there's trips to, to in-laws and stuff, and it's just it just gets crazy at that Yeah, the holidays time. just add all kinds of stress on top of that. I, I'm not a big holiday guy. Never have been. Yeah. It's the worst six weeks of the year. <laughs> I generally don't like once, – once you get out of the little kid phase, yeah. there's no little kids in our family anymore, so Christmas is great. I go get to watch you know, my brother-in-law get another pair of pants. <laughs> great. Get some more towels or something. It's just – Christmas. Well, there's Without all the scheduling kids. and the stress yeah. and getting everybody together. And yeah, it's just frustrating. Plus this time of year, like the days are getting shorter, which I hate. That We're sucks. quickly approaching where it's going to get dark at five o'clock, it's which I hate. Yeah. Um, Not a fan. So for Christmas, do you, do you do any traveling for that or is that all here in Kansas No, City? usually all here in Kansas City. All okay. my family's here. So yeah. usually we go over to my sister's and kind of everybody comes over there. Yeah. So that's kind of the way it goes. It just doesn't. There's just nothing about the country that has a holiday feel right now, yeah. or or when we get there. I mean, now the big thing is the supply chain is going to screw. Well, up yeah, there's going to be Christmas shortages. Up. You won't be able to get gifts. I mean, some of these retailers are saying that their um, Christmas, their stock for the holidays, isn't going to come until February. So that's going to impact is a lot of people. Is it really going to be a crime if you have to wait for something? Oh, it's the end of Christmas. I don't know. We can't have Christmas if you don't get the Fox you know. News is all over this <laughs> that Biden's going to kill Christmas. If you don't get your smartwatch, you know it's not Christmas. Well, and you were talking about you know family leave. Fox is all over. Apparently, this whole uh, dock situation in Los Angeles, where ships can't get into the, the port of LA to unload, oh, yeah. is all because Pete Buttigieg is taking two months of, of uh, parental leave. Well, such a non-story. I mean, yeah. that's all over conservative media. Because of, apparently, we have one person who can only work on that issue, and you know, the, an agency head. We don't have an entire department of people within and DOT. Brandon, I don't know if you know this, but a man—I mean, he didn't even have a baby. Right. Physically, he's not recovering from anything. <laughs> he's just hanging out with his two children. I mean, he's just bonding with his new kids, Brandon. What, what's he even doing? Well, it's interesting because people like Tucker Carlson and others have brought up the whole thing. Like, why do we even have paternity leave? Why is that a thing? And like, that's the same dumb shit that will say, well, I wonder why people are going back to work. <laughs> really? You do? Yeah. Work was designed after World War II for men who are getting out of the military. It's yeah. a completely bogus setup that needs to change. Uh, a lot with it. Yeah, then definitely needs to change. Are you watching anything, reading anything new this week? Uh, let's see. I watched the season finale of Ted Lasso. Yeah, that was um, good. Which was that good. rebounded nicely. I really liked it. I, I don't like the fact that I'm not going to ruin it, but don't, the yeah, character don't, don't went ruin bad. It. Yes. <sighs> um, so that was very entertaining to watch. I will say that there is this, um, there's an element of wokeism that bothers me a lot. I was reading an article where there was a contributor who was griping about Ted Lasso, the fact that there are some central minority characters that everybody likes but the claim was that these minority characters are viewed through the prism of the white characters and they don't really have their own stories um and one of the claims was you know one of these characters is one of the um the soccer football players who's widely liked and and has an his own um, um arc on yeah. the 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 season and the claim was that um he is uh you know not given negative qualities he's made out to be too good and that he's not represented because you know in reality people have all these facets to him then there was another article that um spoke of another character who's a minority who actually turns out to have a bad side and then claimed that that character um was made out to be the boogeyman and he was the oh, minority and it, so i'm like you can't have it both ways like you have one person claiming that there isn't a bad side to one minority character and one that is complaining because there is. So and I'm just like, this is why, this is why I can agree with you historically on the context of a Jefferson statue, but yeah. I, but I can't get in bo on board with you because of stupid shit like that. Right. So they, they, and you can draw a connection between the two. Yeah. 
That's just dumb. It, it, just, it gets just ridiculous and petty. But, um, no, I did see the season finale of that, which is good. I've started uh, watching the morning show again because the yeah, next season really of that is that. That's one of my favorites. The um, only thing bad with Ted Lasso is I think they're going to end it after next season because Sudeikis is like, you know, I've got movies to make. Oh, I've yeah. got other things to do. So Yeah, there's only one more season left. So, yeah, it's yeah. going to be a short run, but it's a quality show. Did you watch uh, Midnight Mass on Netflix? I know we I, talked I about it. I have not. But oh, it's so good. Two you or three more it. podcasts have said you need to watch this. Oh, so good. Okay. Yeah. Have you watched Squid Game? I've started that. I actually started that on my way back home um, in the air. Uh, so, yeah, that one is. I'm. I've watched two episodes. I'm on episode three. Is this some sort of of of? I, I think I, I know the four corners of the plot, but is this an anti-capitalism, anti-corporate message thing they're sending? Because these people are playing this game where they they die if they don't win, but. They're really trying to get rid of their debt, right? Right. So okay. it's 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 a broadside against um, the financial system more so okay. than capitalism. The fact that people can so easily get into debt, but then it's very difficult to get out of debt, and that the mechanisms for getting out of debt are all like loan sharks or yeah. extra legal. Uh, you know, I think where you know you face violent repercussions, so you know mafia and so forth on trying, and then you get stuck, and it just keeps spiraling yeah. and spiraling. And so these people are desperate for a way to get out of debt, and hence they join this game and they put their lives at stake because um, the alternative is so much worse. I think the one thing that's pretty striking is there's an opportunity for some of these people to exit the game and not um, face the possibility of dying, but life as they know it is so bad with no opportunity, no end in sight to their yeah. their debt that they're willing to go back in even for that minuscule chance at being able to win and repay their debts off. So it's, it's kind of bizarre from that standpoint. Hmm. God, I wonder how many people would actually do that. I imagine a percentage, it'd be a higher percentage than you think. Yeah, so probably. You're going to yeah. do something incredibly dangerous that there's a more than 50% chance you're going to die. If you feel like you have but, no way out otherwise, yeah. yeah, if life is that bad, I mean, people are willing to take risks, I mean, that they otherwise would have take. Well, the fact that that's the number one show in the world or has been. And it has been for weeks, weeks now, which is crazy. I think that, that tells you how that message resonates with yeah. people right now. All right, that's our hour. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for listening to Two Men in the Middle. Make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at twomeninthemiddle.com. Drop us an email at twomeninthemiddle at gmail.com or tweet at us at Two Men in the Middle. We'll see you next week.